From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Welcome aboard, friends. A number of people have pointed out to me, uh, it was rather curious that my website, richardserrett.com, was hijacked and went down uh, just before our big 50th anniversary special on J and JFK. And uh, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but who knows? Uh, I, one of the things that we were going to, uh, we had ready to launch on, on the website for the JFK special last week, well, it started out as an app uh, that was developed by our good uh, friend Nelson Thal, and it was called The Smoking Gun Moment. It was going to be um, on the homepage at richardserrett.com, and it will be at some point once we revamp and relaunch our uh, our site, and that's coming in a couple of weeks. But it was a few of the crucial frames from the Zapruder film, which you could play, and, of course, uh, you know, frames 312, 313, 314, the, the mortal headshot. And then over top of that, the voiceover of who was then an unknown local TV news reporter from Texas by the name of Dan Rather, who is commenting on what he saw as a witness to the assassination. And, of course, Rather says quite clearly that he noted Kennedy's head going forward violently, of course, which would corroborate the lone gunman theory that the gunman was positioned in the rear and above, of course, the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository building. But it's a rather interesting contrast that you hear rather saying that while you're watching the Zapruder film and those frames uh, during which Kennedy's head is clearly uh, going violently, violently backwards, uh, which would seem to indicate clearly that he was shot from the front. Uh, anyway, it's called the uh, the smoking gun moment, and it was to be on uh, on the website in time for the 50th, but the site got hijacked just before. So who knows? What do you make of that? All right. Uh, speaking of Nelson Thal, we are going to um, uh, welcome Nelson aboard as part of a new segment coming up just after the bottom of the hour. Uh, and he'll be with us every two weeks for a short segment we're calling uh, State Secrets, uh, giving us the news uh, that you're not uh, going to get from the mainstream media. Speaking about the news, one of the unfortunate aspects of living in the electronic age, uh, living at the speed of light, is our ever-shortening attention spans. And uh, whether it's a natural uh, calamity or a political assassination, after about two days we seem to forget whatever has just happened, and then we're on to something new. Uh, so a young uh, a black mother is gunned down, unarmed, in Washington, D.C., and we chew on that for a couple of days, uh, and then we're on to something else, the latest Hollywood gossip or some natural calamity uh, in Southeast Asia. And then after 48 hours, we're on to something else. That's what they call in the news business the 48-hour news cycle. And it's it's easy to blame the major news organizations for this, but as consumers of the news, we're really perhaps equally culpable. But one of the things I like to do on this show is to go back and bring you updates on what I think are some of the most important events. And of those important stories, we seem to have uh, quit talking about one of the uh, important stories, rather, we've, we've, we've stopped talking about is the Fukushima nuclear power plant accident that occurred uh, back in March of 2011. 
course, there was a tsunami and an earthquake in Japan, and, and the damage that was caused by the tsunami at that time produced some equipment failures at the plant. And without this equipment, there was a loss of coolant, uh, and the accident followed, nuclear meltdowns, release of radioactive materials, uh, and it's gone down as the largest nuclear disaster since the Chernobyl disaster of 1986 and the second disaster along with Chernobyl to to measure a level 7 on the international nuclear event scale. So to bring you up to date, what's happening now this month after repeated delays since the summer uh, of 2011, the Tokyo Electric Power Company has launched a high-risk operation to empty the spent fuel pool which sits atop Reactor 4 at the uh, the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And the urgency attached to this particular site uh, is because there are over 400 tons of nuclear material in the pool, and it could reignite. If this pool, which sits atop this plant, were to collapse, it could trigger a chain reaction and a nuclear blast, and consequent radioactive releases would of course, heavily contaminate much of the world. So here, to bring us up to date on what's happening at the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant is Dr. John Apsley. He's a physician, an author. He specialized for the past 30 years in regenerative medicine. His cutting-edge techniques are designed to reverse chronic degenerative diseases at their source through accelerated tissue repair and cellular regeneration. He holds degrees in medicine, chiropractic, and nutrition. He's a certified acupuncturist. He has written and co-authored six books, including Fukushima, Meltdown, and Modern Radiation. And, of course, the bestseller, The Regeneration Effect. Welcome to the program once again, Dr. John Apsley. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you for having me on. This is going to be a good uh, a good show. Don't have a lot of time, unfortunately, but let's just talk about, again, what is happening uh, this month, in this high-risk operation, some might see it as a hail, a hail, a hail Mary pass. Really, what is the uh, Tokyo, uh, uh, the uh, the uh, electric company trying to do uh, at the at the nuclear plant? What exactly is it they're trying to do? Well, in a nutshell, we've exceeded our ability uh, on a technological basis to accomplish what is trying to be done there. Currently, um, of the four major damaged uh, reactor buildings, it looks like from all evidence that Units 1, 2, and 3 have a full China syndrome, which is deadly in and of itself. We'll probably have more damage done to the Pacific Ocean from Unit 3 uh, combined with Unit 1 and 2 than is even on anyone's radar right now. But as far as the airborne danger, we have to look to Unit 4 because Unit 4 is about 200 feet away from one of the world's largest supplies or storage facilities of radioactive material. It's older stuff, it's cooler, but it still sits only 200 feet away. And I've been uh, on the um, the web all day and also communicating to an international expert today to get the latest on it. And so I, I'm pleased to be able to bring this uh, as a first, as an exclusive to your audience, Richard. Um, when the tsunami rolled in, unit, unit number four building was not active. It wasn't running, but it was in uh, storage mode, and it was storing quite a bit of uh, radioactive fuel. And the damage from the tsunami and the earthquake caused the building to start tilting. 
Plus, the ground underneath the building uh, became super saturated with water, and it still remains that way. Groundwater, because they, GE, when they built the power plants back in the uh, 60s, they did not do it properly. So groundwater is running constantly into the site as well. So between the tsunami, the groundwater, and the constant pouring of new fresh water into these pools because they've lost their normal uh, replenishment systems, there's just an overabundance of a ground that is like, not like quicksand, but the next worst thing. So this building, not only was it tilting, but it was also cracked. And they immediately recognized the problem. They denied it, but there's photographs of it uh, to clearly show that the building was tilting. And they built a, a, a tandem building on top of it as quickly as they could to try to haul off the radioactive fuel in the pool because, as you stated, um, if any one of these 650-pound um, uh, uh, assemblies, of which there's over um, uh, 1,500 of them in there. Essentially, they're fuel of, bundles. They're, they're fuel bundles, right? Yeah, there's uh, about 68 fuel rods per bundle. They're called assemblies, and each assembly weighs about 660 pounds. And there are 1,551 by my count. Everyone's counting a little bit less than that, but it doesn't matter. It's a huge amount of stored uh, urea, uh, fuel that's... Um, about 202 of them are fresh, brand new fresh. And it's believed that those 202 may be super enriched with additional radioactive materials like plutonium, although that's not been com- confirmed yet because it's kind of on the, um, on the confidential side of things. But it could be. And that means that when they're trying to lift these assemblies out at a tilt, um, they have to do it straight up and down because the cranes can't remove these 15-foot-long, half-ton assemblies at an angle they can only lift them straight up and they're already damaged they've already been they've already gone through several fires uh, at least two explosions and the earthquake itself so uh, pictures that were taken of the pools have noticed severe damage to uh, most of the assemblies you can see it quite clearly on my website and it's also uh, available for people uh, on the internet well when the cranes now lift these things up some of them are probably likely already cracked to some degree, maybe completely. And as they lift them up, if they do break apart, even though they're going to stay underwater the entire time because the pool is that high, um, it's possible that some of these assemblies or parts of them could, could fall back down into the pool and rest on top of the other assemblies. And that would tend to cause a uh, criticality. It's, uh, crit- to me, it's like, it, it's like playing – remember that game Pickup Sticks – and you turn it would instead of playing with I don't know forty or fifty sticks where you have to move pull a, a stick out very carefully without disturbing the other ones. This time though we're playing with fifteen hundred pickup sticks. What are the odds you know that they're going to be able to pull out all fifteen hundred without something going terribly wrong? That is correct. That's a, that's a great analogy. So that way your audience understands what we're talking about. We're also you can also look at it as like a big pack of cigarettes, and you're lifting one cigarette out and it falls down on top of the other ones. And when that occurs, the uranium fuel that's in these assemblies gets too close to the others, and uh, chain reaction starts, or what's called a criticality. That would be very difficult to stop. There isn't really a technology that can stop that from occurring. They would have to scurry really quickly to try to pull it off, because in just a short time period, uh, it would go to this chain reaction. And then there would be a boiling off of the water, and once the water was boiled off, then you would go to explosions and fires again. 
and there would be an immediate re- release of lots of radiation into the air. So what people are concerned about, including former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, who's going around uh, to anyone that will listen to him, uh, talking along the same lines that your audience is listening to tonight, what we're uh, trying to, uh, to get our hands around is what would happen to the common fuel pool only 200 feet away, which contains uh, just under 7,000 of these assemblies. We're talking about a total of about 11,000 11, uh, assemblies altogether when you look at the entire complex. And here's what some physicists are proposing. Once a criticality occurs, it means that there is a, a chain reaction uh, that produces neutrons, which are very powerful little critters, and they can penetrate through anything. And they collide with other atoms of, your, of uh, nuclear fuel, and they generate more neutrons. So that's why it's a chain reaction. One neutron makes two, and then two makes four, and then four makes eight, and so on and so forth. Let me just jump in here, uh, uh, Dr. Apsley. We'll uh, take a quick time out and come back, and we'll, uh, we'll continue on this rather dire uh, situation uh, with the Fukushima nuclear power plant and the attempt to transfer... Uh, over 1,500 fuel bundles, radioactive fuel bundles, into a new location, a dangerous game of pickup sticks that could uh, cost us all, every one of us here on Earth. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Dr. John Apsley is uh, with us. Uh, talking about a very risky operation that's happening this month at the Fukushima uh, nuclear plant uh, in Japan where they are attempting to to, uh, transfer uh, some 1,500 fuel bundles, radioactive fuel bundles, uh, into, I guess, a new cooling uh, uh, area. Uh, now, what genius, first of all, before we talk about this chain reaction you were onto, what genius would, would, would uh, design... Uh, a uh, essentially a a cooling uh, pool on like stilts or whatever it is. I mean, it's it, this this rickety structure is threatening to collapse, and yet it's holding all of this radioactive material. Yeah, uh, the designs of these nuclear power plants, including the ones here in the U.S., are just uh, draconian. They're fraught with all kinds of um, you know bad and poorly designed concepts of putting fuel too close to and too high up from where it should be. Um, so where we left off the last time, just so your readers aren't left hanging, is that uh, a chain reaction is when these neutrons start really piling up quickly, and then they can start off other chain reactions, even in fuel pools that are farther away. And no one knows if 200 feet away or even 1,000 feet away is safe enough for a chain reaction in Unit 4 to possibly set off uh, the others, but even if it didn't, in, in terms of the neutrons, there would be so, so much radiation that people would have to evacuate, and eventually there would be fires, and those fires would eventually take out the power systems that keep everything cool, and it would spread like that right on down through the entire complex, and that danger, I think, is more uh, more probable if it did go into a full criticality. And uh, then you could have the coolant systems of the common fuel pool and the other containments that they've been able to construct just go into total failure. And then that's when you're talking about a North Hemisphere uh, lethal event. And that's what we're all worried about. 
not just me, it's not just the former chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, Dr. Jacko, but it's also the top physicists that don't work for the nuclear power industry. Um, these are these are brave people that have uh, suffered greatly uh, because they were experts in the field, and um, uh, no one in the power industry likes them to bring this information forward. You just sorry, um, you, you you mentioned a, a, a northern hemisphere uh, event. What did you call it? A northern hemisphere lethal, a, le- a lethal event. Could, could you explain what you mean exactly by that. <clears throat> okay, well, we'd have to do a comparison for the audience to understand. What is not generally known is that the 180 tons of radioactive fuel that burned out of Chernobyl back in 1987 over 20 years killed about a million people. And it crippled, and I mean totally crippled, at least 8 million. A lot of them were children. And that will continue probably to double again over the next 50 to to 70 years because radioactivity just doesn't go away. And what we've been discovering is that it's the low levels of exposure once it gets into the body that does the great damage. It's not these huge amounts that people are taught and what's put into the mainstream press. It's not these huge levels of radioactivity that are doing all the damage. It's these really tiny amounts because once it's absorbed into the lungs or you eat it in the food supply, it just continues to burn and burn and burn until there's cancer that results or other diseases, including uh, brain disorders, uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease, so on and so forth. So that's why there were 8 million that were crippled over 20 years at uh, Chernobyl over near Russia. Um, Valeris is just a total disaster area, and um, and it will continue to be that way for another 300 years. Um, well, Fukushima, when it went off, there were two explosions at Unit 1 and Unit 3. There was one underground at Unit 2. That's caused the China syndromes in those three. And then there's this present uh, danger at Unit 4. It also had explosions. And we're talking about six times the amount of radioactivity, and probably we're talking about 12 times, 10 to 12 times altogether, if you include all of the different fuel pools that we've been talking about tonight. So Unit 4 could be the trigger that, under the right or wrong circumstances, depending upon how you want to phrase it, could set off a domino effect, a chain reaction that would recruit in all of the stored fuel on this huge site called Fukushima Daiichi. Um, if that were to occur, we would have um, so much radiation that would enter into the a- atmosphere that even though it's diluted, uh, whenever it rains, it would concentrate down on the city. And indeed, we saw about a 50% increase in infant mortality rate in Philadelphia not long after the Chernobyl, uh, the Fukushima event. And that was because they received the heaviest rains in the U.S. at that time when the fallout was going over the U.S., we also saw uh, over in Vancouver, uh, Canada, almost the same extent of infant death mortality increase during that same time frame. And we saw about 40% increase in infant death rate down the west coast of the U.S. Um, so it's, number one, where the fallout comes over. Number two, it's where the rainfall is occurring to bring it down. And number three, it's not so much about the total amount. It's about how it enters into the body and then just stays there. These comparisons, Richard, to, oh, this is just an average chest X-ray are completely uh, wrong. Oh, a chest X-ray goes on for a millisecond, and then your exposure is done. But when you have a hot particle in your lungs, it continues to burn and burn and burn and burn and burn, and that doesn't stop for 300 years if you were to live that long. 
So um, uh, we're seeing now, uh, in fact, this week, there'll be another peer-reviewed journal that will publish on the increased rates of thyroid disease here, mostly in the young in the U.S., um, uh, likely due, almost 100% due to the Fukushima. The reason why I say that, Richard, is because if you eliminate all the variables as to why there's been a spike in these thyroid disorders for children here in the U.S. and Canada, um, you can't account for any other reason why there was a spike there's no other variable except for what happened at uh, Fukushima. Dr. John Apsley is with us, uh, the author of The Regeneration Effect and also Fukushima Meltdown and Modern Radiation. Uh, so if this, uh, this Hail Mary pass fails, I mean, first of all, what is the, <clears throat> what is the likelihood, do you think, <clears throat> that, this, that they will be able to uh, to, to pull this off, that they will be able to transfer these uh, radioactive fuel bundles from this crumbling uh, cooling pool to a new location? I give it, uh, no one knows, I give it a 50-50 at best. Um, the reason is is because I've seen the pictures underwater of the damage done to these assemblies. They're no longer sturdy. Um, all of the uh, construction that keeps them in proper distance from other uh, uran- uh, of the fuel rods has basically been whittled away. There's no uh, ability to dampen the chain reactions except for water that's been loaded up with boron, and that's it. There's usually many layers that insulate against the chain reaction from occurring, but because they've all been destroyed, it's just the water that's being pumped in constantly with huge amounts of boron that's been put into it. So we're on a thread. And uh, as far as this technology is concerned, it's never been tried before, but they have to do it. They do not have a, have a choice. If there is another 7.0 strike, direct strike, at that, at that whole facility area, and it, they just had one recently, a 7.3, but it wasn't a direct hit. If they have one at the surface close by, that's it. That entire unit of all of those nuclear fuel storage areas and the Three China syndromes and Unit Four and the common fuel pool—they're all gone, and that and a lot of that uh, radioactive gas has to enter into the atmosphere. There's no other way it can it can happen. And Richard, there's there it would depend at that moment where the wind was going. Um, at the time that the Fukushima explosions took place, both at Unit One and Unit Three, one was a supersonic. It went five kilometers into the air at Unit Three. Uh, the air was blowing out into the Pacific. And that means it, it hit the West Coast here about six days later. Hawaii got really massively hit. Their dairy milk production was destroyed for a few days because there was so much radioactive material in it. Um, it would mean that if the wind was blowing inward toward Tokyo, that Japan would almost immediately lose the northern half of Japan. So that's number one. If the wind was going out again to the Pacific, should this occur, then it's going to come our way. And then we're in trouble here. And on my website, I've given three different scenarios that we can help ourselves with. We can plan for this. We just need to keep our ears open, Richard. We need to listen to your show, and we need to watch the current news. And I have the three scenarios listed down, and they go like this. Um, if there is an, no announcement and everything goes fine, then everything is hunky-dory, except we're still getting 30 million metric tons of radioactive debris that's being incinerated by the Japanese government between now and next end of next year. That's being put into the atmosphere, and that's coming our way here. 
So people ought to learn how to protect themselves, and we can do that with certain things. Let me explain how we do this. Both chemotherapy and radiation therapy have one purpose. They cause the production of hydrogen peroxide at the cancer site, and as they produce enough of it, it kills the cancer cells. Well, uh, just an aside, they got most of that uh, ability by looking at how herbs do it, except herbs, they do cause an excess production of hydrogen peroxide in the tumors, but they don't do it to normal healthy tissue. Um, what is happening with these hot particles is the same thing. They ionize tissues, and when they ionize, they produce hydrogen peroxide, and it melts our tissues. We do have defenses against hydrogen peroxide. It's called antioxidants. And if we know how to turn our enzyme systems on in our bodies, if we fuel those up with dietary supplements, uh, they work a billion times with a bees and boy better than an antioxidant just taken by itself to try to quench this hydrogen peroxide. So again, folks, it's all about hydrogen peroxide, and you can do something about this. So uh, again, we're back to the first scenario where nothing happens, but we still have this 30 million tons of radioactive incineration coming our way. We have to protect ourselves from that. Number two, something happens. They say a criticality has happened or an accident has happened, and they somehow get it under control within 48 hours. There's no announcement that the plant has been evacuated. That will mean that in six days we'll get hit hard here on the, on the West Coast, and then for the next nine days total, once the event occurs, we'll have to watch areas along the North American area, even as far away as Toronto, for where there's rainfall or snowfall, because that will bring down the fallout down hard on the, on the people's heads. Um, or number, or, uh, and, and, there, and there's uh, ways to deal with that. We would have to evacuate certain areas for a time period, but then after a few weeks we could return as long as we continue to upgrade our own antioxidant systems within our own bodies. Very important, folks. Very, very important we understand how to do this. And it doesn't hurt you. You can do this for just for general health purposes. There's no reason not to. And then number three, we get the announcement that there's been an incident at Fukushima. And they have, uh, after 48 hours, they announce that they have been forced to evacuate the plant. That's, for me, the worst-case scenario. That means that they've lost control. They can't stop the criticality fire. It doesn't mean that the common fuel pool, which has the, the, on the whole campus, um, together with the 7,000 assemblies at the common fuel and then the other um, you know, 5,000 that are collective around other areas, doesn't mean those are going to go off right away. What it means is, is that they, they can't stop uh, a raging fire and that sooner or later that should recruit in the failure of the power system on the property to keep everything cool down. And then we have from days to weeks before the other systems begin to collapse, and that's when the to some total of radioactivity could go into um, uh, criticality. So criticality comes down to this. It, it superheats. And when it gets to about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, it only takes an hour at that temperature for one of the most toxic radioactive substances be to become aerosoled, to go totally airborne. And that's the cesium-134 and 137, and that's what causes all the damn leukemias. The iodine is in the air at the same time. It's a gas anyway. It's what's causing all the darn thyroid problems. Um, Immunity drops, people die from common colds and influenza, and that's what we've been tracking through the Centers for Disease Control data. 
Um, and then later, many years later, you get the thyroid cancers, you get the breast cancers, you get the reproductive cancers, and then you have the brain disorders. But it takes about 10 to 20 years to all pan out. But again, folks, we can do something about this. Uh, we just have to keep our, our eyes and our ears sharp. That's all. Now, if, if, we, if we want to uh, get onto this antioxidant diet in a hurry, uh, w- w- uh, tell us where we can go to get that information. Well, I put up free information on my website. So if you go to drapsley.com, you'll immediately see the, the main tabs at the top. And if you go to Radiation Crisis Antidotes, you'll read about all this. It's all documented. It's all documented from authoritative sources. And then off to the immediate left, I have sub-tabs. And those sub-tabs are known protocols that quench the radioactivity in the human body. And there's, there's basically there's three things that we have to do. We have to remove what's there, what's gone in. So we have to remove ourselves from, from additional exposure and then take it out of our body. And thank God we have the experience at Chernobyl to know how to do that because they were able to rescue a lot of the children and people there by using certain edible clays and zeolite and uh, even seaweed um, and algaes that were known to, and even things like applesauce. So even people with no money can do this. Pardon me. And uh, once it's removed from the system, then you can get into the act of, uh, of repairing the damage that's been done. Uh, in other words, neutralizing the ongoing uh, burning that's, that'll, that'll happen because the, the burns still continue with this uh, oxygen, with oxygen peroxide, hydrogen peroxide, excuse me. And then you can get into accelerated repair. And, and Richard, we have regenerative nourishment that are part of the longest-lived cultures in the planet. And there are a few food groups that have them in there. Um, I prefer mushrooms because... They are uh, grown medicinally, uh, they're grown organically, and they're uncontaminated. All right, Dr. Apsley, I've, I've got I've to wrap this up, but um, we can get, we can get uh, some other the, the other food groups and so forth uh, that can assist us in these terrible times on drapsley.com. There's a list there. Oh, yes, it is, yes. DrApsley.com. Well, we'll keep watching this, walking on pins and needles for the foreseeable future, I'm afraid. Uh, Dr. Apsley, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Richard. Bye now. All right, Dr. John Apsley. All right. When we come back, state secrets with Nelson Thal, and then open lines to the top of the hour. The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows. The good guys lost Everybody knows The fight was fixed The poor stay poor 
the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. All right, welcome back. And we came back with that immortal uh, clip from Network and uh, the mad prophet of the airwaves, Howard Beale. Uh, my. Uh, the patron saint, if you will, of the conspiracy show. And we now have in studio our very own resident, Howard Beale, media scientist, Nelson Thal, with a new installment on the program entitled State Secrets. Nelson, welcome. Yeah, it's great being here, Richard, and having an opportunity. We've got a short while just to throw out some important news events, just the, the highlights. People can do their own research with Google, etc. All right, State Secrets, here we are. So um, let's start off. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, as we always say. Marshall McLuhan, the arts and sciences are in the pockets of the secret societies. And John F. Kennedy, who did his famous uh, state, uh, secret society speech before a meeting of the American Newspaper Publishers Association, ANPA, in 1961. Of which, by the way, my father happened to be in attendance. I never knew that. Yeah. You are full of surprises. Yes. So um, let's get right into it. I think one of the best news items that we should report on that the owners of the system really don't want us to know about, people to know about, is this, that in 1973, Joseph C. Sharp, an experimental psychologist, performed an experiment which bypassed the mechanism of his own ears. His own ears. All right. You're talking voice-to-skull technology. Yep. The military had patented a mind weapon, uh, U.S. patent number 6587729, quote, apparatus for audibly communicating speech using radio frequency hearing effect. The military has the mind weapons to transmit voice and visions, daydreams and nightmares into the minds of those targeted, Richard. Well, that's rather interesting in light of the Washington Naval Yard shooter who was complaining about hearing voices, receiving orders in his head. Also, that poor uh, a, a black mother uh, who was gunned down, unarmed, right. by the Washington, D.C. She police. was hearing voices, too. Yes, she was. Yeah. So these voices are being placed in there by, uh, we've got the patent number. Well, the technology exists. We Let, know that Let's now. just say this, even more. We can say this, that on March the 4th, 2001, the U.S. Marine Corps announced a new non-lethal weapon called, quote, active denial technology, unquote. It produces enormous pain by boiling the molecules of water in the human skin without damaging the skin itself. And, of course, the military has used these weapons at Gitmo to torture the minds of the enemy 24 hours a day. There is also that mass unexplained uh, uh, surrender by uh, Saddam Hussein's elite units in the Republican Guard. Uh, and it was suggested that that technology was employed uh, during the Gulf War. Uh, our next item is um, an interesting one. Uh, first of all, it really is uh, pointed out, uh, we should point out, Richard, that our um, state secret news is compiled by an informal association of retired intelligence officers turned whistleblowers. And uh, they send us information from all the different sources, including, we should say this, I know people, carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeons are a big business today, unknown to the public, in the community of intelligence officers. Is that right? Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Peterborough to London, Peterborough to Guelph, all the cross they're able to communicate, and uh, Big Brother can't get a, a hand 
on the message that's in the leg of those pigeons. Oh, wonderful. Why don't you do an end run around uh, the NSA because it's pretty hard to, to uh, hack a carrier pigeon. It's simple. They have no back doors. Exactly. Now, while North America is distracted by Mayor Ford, what is being hushed up is that the European Union, as we speak, is amassing a huge army under the noses of North Americans. And it's interesting that it, the Germany's very popular... Minister of Defense, Baron Karl Theodor Gutenberg, is now called the Cool Baron in the German press. So this isn't so much the European unions uh, are uh, ramping up their armaments, it's Germany. Germany. Once again, German army, Germany is rearming as we speak. Not talked about much, they disguise it with Iranian uh, Iranian <laughs> nuclear problems. You know, the Iranians we should we should come back to another point with what's going on. We'll do it on a state secret news next time. As so the Iranians got the bomb from ABB, Swiss heavy machinery company, and Rumsfeld was on the board. Remember, Skolnick ah, pointed that out. But the Germans rearming. Geez, I've seen yeah. that movie before. I think I know how it ends. Well, Napolitano talked about it, and on August 27th... Napolitano being the former Secretary of Homeland Security. On her retirement, get this, she warned of wars, disasters, and serious cyber attack. And get this, she was quoted saying, be prepared and bring a, quote, large bottle of Advil, unquote, Janet Napolitano told her yet-to-be-named replacement in a farewell address Tuesday morning. So you can see, folks, what is going to happen. They're telling us. Cyber attacks, disasters, wars. Amazing. Yeah. Um, how much time I think we have we time have? for one more, Nelson. We have time State for one more? State Secrets with Nelson Thal here on The Conspiracy Show. Well, I guess we can't leave without pointing one thing, and that is... Condon's Law says when you don't know the whole truth, your worst fears are bound to be close. And so we use that as a motto, and uh, it often comes out to be true when we hear from the whistleblowers. He, the author of The Manchurian Candidate. Exactly. Now, one thing we do know, we've been inundated with JFK assassination information. But for some reason, somebody didn't spell out the most obvious state secret and smoking gun and and that is this, that police, Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry revealed in 1971 that definitive paraffin tests done on Oswald that day proved negative. So, Rich, I don't know who assassinated Kennedy, but I know it wasn't Oswald, and that's what the Dallas Police Chief said. Funny thing, he didn't say it on November 22nd or 23rd or 24th. He waited till 1971. There you go. There well, for a, a, no uh, no shots were fired by Oswald according to the paraffin wax test, and yet on that day he was supposedly fired three from the Manlicker Carcano, and then another four shots uh, from his snub-nosed 38 into Officer J.D. Tippett. Uh, so that's seven shots fired, and yet the paraffin wax test said... You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome back, friends. Uh, just about uh, 12, 13, maybe 14 minutes before we dim the lights and say goodbye for another week. So uh, this presents a rare opportunity, uh, and that is to do a little open lines. So if you'd like to talk about, well, just about anything, 
uh, keeping in mind, of course, the uh, the format of the program, the uh, I guess the parameters. It's a pretty broad canvas on which we paint here every Sunday night or every uh, every week. Uh, we talk about uh, things conspiratorial, of course, uh, but we also talk about. Uh, we talk about alternative energy. We talk about alternative archaeology. Just recently, we had a wonderful conversation with Michael Cremo, the author of Forbidden Archaeology. Uh, we also talk metaphysical, supernatural, paranormal. We spend a good amount of time discussing the UFO ET phenomena, which is just a huge, a huge arena. So, as I say, we cover a lot of ground. And uh, if you'd like to talk about anything you've heard recently on the program, or perhaps if you have a recommendation for something you'd like to hear on the program, well, now would be just a great time. Dana, welcome to the program. You are Hi, on the air. You, I'm so well, I can't even begin to describe. Just a, a few things about the TV barrage on the Kennedy specials. For some reason, they didn't have St. John Hunt, the son of E. Howard Hunt, giving his testimony about his father's um, deathbed confession. Right. Yes, that was not part of the uh, of the menu. Certainly, it was just a constant barrage of uh, how Oswald did it, why the magic bullet theory wasn't so magic, and just I guess propping up that old warhorse, the Warren Commission. Yeah, I don't know too much about pistols or guns or anything. Don't even own one, but um, I don't believe a nine millimeter can be fired from a thirty eight. Now they got Oswald in the theater with a thirty eight. And Tippett had four nine millimeters in him. Well, my understanding was, and this is going back to Garrison's. I, I, I recently reread his Playboy interview. J.D. Tippett had uh, yes four four bullets. Three of them were from a Winchester, and one was from a Remington. So unless the folks at Winchester were putting their bullets in Remington uh, cases, then I don't know how you explain two different bullets in the body from one gun. Also, who in their right mind? would fire four shots into somebody and then empty the shells onto the sidewalk. It's not like a rifle where when you, you know, with the bolt action, when you fire, you know, the shell comes flying out. It doesn't work that way with a pistol. Yeah, can I recommend a future guest for you? You have a lot of great guests. Thank you. um, Yes, please. I don't know. Have you had William Pepper on? Francis William Francis Pepper. Yeah, I know yeah. William. I've I've um, I've uh, spent some time with William in New York. For those who don't know, William Francis Pepper, New York uh, uh, lawyer who is currently Sirhan Sirhan's attorney. Sirhan yeah. Sirhan just recently uh, was uh, transferred to a prison in San Diego, which was kind of interesting on the anniversary of JFK. I don't know if there's yeah. a connection. I, I want to just say something. Um, the percentage of the people that believe the CIA killed John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy is very high. I know that's something that at least, uh, you know, I can give credit to uh, my fellow Americans for at least opening up their mind to that. I honestly believe the CIA killed both of them. Who knows? That might be an oversimplification to say the CIA, just like people like to say the military-industrial complex. We give labels uh, to these groups. I think, you know, it was kind of a quilt, really. You had certain rogue elements, maybe uh, from the CIA, maybe from, uh, def- you know, the defense intelligence, probably from some alphabet uh, intelligence agency we've never even heard of, foreign elements, perhaps. But I subscribe to the notion that it was a coup d'etat to take over the executive branch. How they got it done, 
you know, who was involved, you know, did they employ somebody from uh, the mob? Was it Nicoletti in the Dal Tech building? Was it someone on the southwestern window shooting out of the, the Texas Book Depository building? Was it Roselli? Who knows? Marcello. One of the specials on, on TV in America, I found it hard to believe they'd even put that on. They had photographs of the top of the window frame and then a shot right through the middle of the windshield. But they didn't say if the one in the middle of the windshield came from behind or in front. I have mm. a feeling it might have came from the front. You and yeah. Nelson do a fantastic job. I really look forward to listening every Sunday. Ah, I appreciate that so much, Dana, and thank you very much for your call. You're very welcome. Uh, I mentioned more information coming out regarding JFK, and here we are now past the uh, the anniversary. But uh, this uh, reported in the uh, Daily Mail in England. Will a long-hidden footage of second shooter to be aired this week prove Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone? Texas real estate developer by the name of Stephen Bowen claims to have footage of JFK's assassination. He says the footage was taken by a Houston news producer on November 22nd. The tape reportedly depicts a second shooter hiding in the bushes along the route of JFK's motorcade. And Bowen is hoping to sell the footage to the highest bidder. So uh, whether or not the footage is genuine isn't yet known, but if it is, it would represent a dramatic development in a story, of course, 50 years in the making. Following the 50th anniversary of uh, the death of JFK, Bowen, who is also a principal in small in a small film production company, decided the time was right to sell the footage, which reportedly depicts a second shooter, to the highest bidder. Well, I haven't seen that. I don't know if that is aired yet, and I missed it, but I would certainly be interested in having a look at that. Didn't have time to uh, to get into a story just recently. A former aide to uh, President Richard Nixon has come out now and said that Nixon always thought LBJ was responsible in some way for the assassination, which is, of course, a very curious note. You know, everyone is asked of a certain age, where were you when JFK was shot? And everybody knows, well, I was sitting in the gymnasium at uh, such and such public school, and uh, I turned to, the, you know, in such remarkable detail. When Richard Nixon was asked, where were you on November 22nd, 1963? He said, I don't remember. I don't remember. And I think George Bush Sr. was also asked that question. And he said, I don't remember. Very curious, don't you think? The other interesting thing that came to light uh, from this uh, former aide to President Nixon was Nixon immediately recognized Jack Ruby when Ruby shot Oswald during the, uh, the, the the infamous prison transfer. He recognized him immediately, and he, I know that guy. And it turns out Johnson had asked Nixon to hire Ruby as an informant back in the, the late 40s or early 50s, I believe. So there again, another interesting thread in this complicated tapestry that is the JFK assassination the relationship between Jack Ruby and Johnson and Nixon, it just, uh, it just gets more and more complicated, uh, every year. More revelations, more deathbed confessions. Uh, will we ever be able to close the book? And now even as we have passed the, uh, the 50th anniversary, I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, we'll just, I guess, keep talking about it whenever new evidence presents itself. It's that important, uh, even 50 years on. Why does it matter, people say? Well, if they, quote, end quote, can murder the president, 
in broad daylight in front of millions of people. What else can they do? Just about anything, I guess. Tim Spreen, thank you for technical production. Uh, back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for that wild and woolly ride. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>